This Week in Startups is brought to you by EquityZen, the premier marketplace allowing private investors to access proven startups. Head to EquityZen.com twist now to get started for free and get your minimum first investment cut in half. Walker Corporate Law, specializing in the representation of entrepreneurs. Visit WalkerCorporateLaw.com and Carta. Simplify how you manage equity with Carta. To get 20% off Carta's cap table software and 409A valuations, go to carta.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis, here in Silicon Valley, angel investing in startups for the last 10 years. Over 200 of them, seven have become unicorns. But one thing I've learned through meeting with thousands of founders a year is that a great founder can come from anywhere and to never underestimate anybody. That is what our firm Launch does when we invest in companies. We look for founders everywhere. And when I went to Sydney last year, everybody kept saying to me, Canva, Canva, you have to meet Canva, you gotta meet Melanie from Canva. And I said, what's Canva? And they said, you know that thing I was showing you where we're making all the graphics for our events? That's Canva. And I said, oh, that thing's awesome. Canva's a tool that allows anybody to become a graphic designer. And I first found out about it actually a couple of years ago when Guy Kawasaki, who worked for Apple for about 15 minutes and wrote about three books about working there, became the chief evangelist. I'm joking, Guy. He's a friend. Um, he became the chief evangelist for Canva. And just this past week, Melanie Perkins was in town. And I saw the news that Mary Meeker, who is one of the most famous analysts in the history of the internet and venture capitalists who just started her own firm, made her first investment, and that investment was in Melanie's company, Canva, and it valued the company at $2.5 billion, which makes you not only the most successful founder since Atlassian in Sydney, it uh, makes you, I think, one of the first companies to hit this kind of valuation in such a short period of time, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a little bit, and thanks for coming on the podcast. I know you're super busy and nice you don't do have... a lot of press, do you? That's true. I'm, I'm pretty focused on what we're trying to do at Canva. So tell me, when did you start Canva and what was the origin story here? So it's been pretty a pretty long journey. I um, was at university a while ago now, and I was teaching design programs and thought they were really complicated and that in the future they should all be online and collaborative and a lot simpler. Um, but this was when I was 19 and I had no business experience or product experience or marketing experience or like literally any relevant experience whatsoever. And so I started um, creating school yearbooks in Australia. So we created a platform so schools could create them. Um, and that went really well and we started to launch and then yeah, it was a pretty long journey. Ended up meeting an investor um, who flew over from Silicon Valley, and he said if I went came here, I would, he'd meet with me, and um, I did. Wow! And yeah, it was three years between pitching investors and landing investment, and then it was a year of development, and then finally in 2013 we launched. So wow. it's been a while. But you pit this original idea I've heard before, which was to bring yearbooks online, and the pain point was graphic design is just arduous and painful. People use Illustrator, Photoshop. It's all single, pl single player mode. And those tools cost a lot of money. And what does it take somebody to learn Photoshop or Illustrator today? 
Yeah. 30, that, 40, 50 hours? Um, way more than that. Like really? you just learn where the buttons are broadly and like let alone how to actually design something that looked good. Um, I just saw so many people struggling to learn like where are the buttons, like how to actually create something. Yeah. But then it's not just the tool that you have to learn. You then have to go and purchase photos from a stock photography library and then go to a font library and a template yeah. library and collaborate over email and go backwards and forwards many times getting all the content from people. Then you can design. Then you have to prepare it for web or print. And I'm like, we thought this was completely ridiculous. Right. And it was all desktop based and thought that it should be online and collaborative. And the product launched in 2013. Yeah. And I think the reaction was like, this is kind of simplistic. And I think people dismissed it a little bit. Am I right? Well, yeah. The first article that was written about Canva, yeah. like, so we'd been, so it'd been sort of like five years in the making, like, you know, between all of the pitching investors and getting rejected hundreds of times and pitching and pivot. engineers and all of this stuff. Yeah. And then finally we launched in 2013 and, and a journalist broke the embargo and said Wonderful. that Canva wasn't the best. Like they, they wrote quite a critical article and we're like, oh no. What did they say? And they were like, your stock photography is cheesy. It's a really simple tool. And they weren't saying very nice things at all. And it felt like my whole world had just crushed down. And I was like quite sad at that point in time. Um, actually, I was here in Silicon Valley, oh, in San Francisco, like staying in my brother's apartment, but he'd gone away and I was like um, there oh. in his living room on the floor by myself and just like devastated. Was this a TechCrunch article or Mashable? Do you remember? I'm not going to name the publication. Okay. Jackie, um, look it up. But but I, but they're not really around that much today. Oh, okay. They're not around that much today. Hmm. <laughs> but anyway, so that's an aside. That's an um, aside. So but, that's super negative. But, it, but from there, things picked up, fortunately, and th things have started to grow rapidly. Like when all the other press came out, they were much more complimentary. Right. And then the community started to get on board and we were getting interest from across the globe. And since then, it's just been growing phenomenally quickly. So yeah. we now have... Um, 15 million monthly active users in 190 countries. We're used in like 80% of Fortune 500 companies. Like just, it's growing pretty rapidly. And it's 500,000 paid users, I read? Yeah, 500,000 paid users. I mean, that's unbelievable. And the, the what does the product start at? Um, so 20 bucks a month or something? Yeah, so the, the broad concept is that it's completely free to use. So the mm -hmm. idea is that regardless of your income, regardless of where you are in the world, you can use Canva and like create awesome presentations and pitch decks and marketing materials. Um, but then if you want to increase your productivity, you can pay. And then when you do that, it's called Canva Pro. We just rebranded it last week. And yeah, it's um, $12.95 and you get access to all this amazing stuff. So it's only $1,200. It's $400 more than... Photoshop. I'm joking. $12.95 yeah. a month. Exactly. Which is like, what is that a year? 150 bucks? Isn't yeah. that? And you get access to like a million photos. The whole point is like, it's really like, we want to give as much value as we possibly can. And people think you're insane for giving it to them for $12 a month, don't they? That's exactly the goal. Yeah. So the churn is incredibly low. People don't <laughs> quit because why would you quit something that's cheaper than Netflix? that you use for business. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive to see. Like, I guess that's the whole point is we want to give as much value. Like when we launched, um, Photoshop was $1,500. Like who can afford that? It's crazy. So yeah, especially not students and everyone else. So we wanted right. to make sure I was accessible. And that's why everybody was pirating it like crazy. Exactly. Yeah. So you paid all that money, then had to spend hundreds of hours of learning it. And then your license like the they upgrade the software what every thirty months or something you got to delete it off your thing and reinstall it was just so arduous. What I love with Canva is like you can get on it and have your invite or your business cards or whatever you need to get done. 
like within 15 minutes. Yeah. And you're just done. Simplicity and taking features out is kind of the, the new feature, isn't it? Yeah. One of our um, philosophies was click minimization. So the idea is trying to like ensure you have the least number of clicks to get the maximum amount of value or to move you towards your goal as quickly as possible. Mm. And so if you look at the number of clicks that would previously be required to create a presentation and going to all these different libraries and all these different content places and collaboration um, compared to what it requires, what, what's, um, what you can do in Canva, it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. And when did the product start to take off? When, when did you start charging for it? Because it, w it was completely free at the start, wasn't it? Yeah, it, and that it, it, we will forever have a completely free plan. Yeah. Um, and the idea of like, there's no cap on the number of designs you can create. You can create as much as you want. Um, and so we launched in 2014 our paid product. Ah. And it grew to 500,000. Was there some tipping point where it just took off? Um. I should show you some of our charts. It's quite funny. It's just a pretty nice looking exponential pointy curve. Yeah. Just like it's it's been just been growing really consistently for now five years. It's one of the magical things about SaaS products. When people buy a subscription and you over service them, they don't quit and it compounds. So calm.com, which we invested in, the meditation app, I don't know if you use it, but it uh yeah, I think they have a million subscribers now. So very similar to you in mm. terms of the footprint. And when that happens, you can just invest in the product massively. At least 500, 600 people you have, what do they do? What, um, what, are, they, what are the departments? Yeah, so we have the, the full spectrum. So we have a lot of engineers. I think we've got about 250 or three, no, a lot of engineers. Yeah. And then we have a lot of product designers and um, graphic designers and um, copywriters and product managers and data analysts and yeah, the full the full swag. So when we get back from this quick break, I want to know how you got your first investors in America, and then what the startup scene was like in Sydney. You're in Sydney, yeah. I started in Perth. You started in Perth, but yeah. now it's in Sydney. Correct. Um, I want to know what the startup scene was like when you started back in whatever 20, 2009, 2010 period. Um, how you cleared market with the American investors, because here in America, the general rule of thumb was investors didn't want to go more than 25 miles to their portfolio companies. And I just booked my ticket to Sydney for the launch festival, and it's a slightly outside of that range. So when we get back, I want to understand how you got all these investors here to invest in a company all the way in Sydney when we get back on The Sweet Startups. Have you ever wondered how to buy shares in a private company? Well, there's a couple of different ways to do it. You could be an angel investor or a venture capitalist here in Silicon Valley, build a huge company, have a fund, and take all this time to meet with 100 companies to maybe invest in one. Or you can use EquityZen. You can wait and see which companies are hitting critical mass, escape velocity, like Uber, like Pinterest, like Airbnb. And on those platforms, you can buy shares in pre-IPO companies that have matured a bit, right? They're not angel investments. These are more mature companies. And you can go to EquityZen and you can buy shares like I did. I sold shares in Uber and a little bit of Calm back in the day just to take a little bit off the table because I had been in those investments for a long time. No dig to those companies. I had invested in them when they were four or five million dollar companies and they became worth a billion and then 40 billion and 50 billion. And that's where EquityZen comes in. They are the premier online marketplace for investing in private tech companies backed by top venture capital firms and angel investors like me before they IPO. And 
access to shareholders to get liquidity. That's what they do. They have access to shareholders who want liquidity. Whether you're a shareholder or investor, you have to just head to equityzen.com slash twist right now. Twist fans can get half the minimum investment. That's right. You can now invest just 10K as opposed to 20K, which used to be their minimum. My listeners get to go to equitiesden.com slash twist and start investing with as little as $10,000. Previous exits, uh, they were available on Equitiesden include Spotify, Sonos, Glassdoor, MongoDB, Cloudera, PillPack, DocuSign, Zscaler. These are great companies. I know all of them. Um, I would have loved to get into Sonos and Spotify early. Start investing in pre-IPO tech companies right now at equityzen.com slash twist. Let me know how it goes. Email me, jason at calacanis.com. Thank you for lowering the minimum. That lets people get involved without too much skin in the game, but just enough to make it meaningful. So thanks to our friends at EquityZen for doing that. EquityZen.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back to This Week in Startups. Finally, Melanie Perkins is on the podcast. She is on the Twitter, Melanie Canva. You spend time on there in that toxicity? Um, You're not addicted like me, are you? I really like just searching for the word Canva and seeing what our community has to say. I, I do that quite regularly. Oh, you're a lurker. <laughs> yeah. So you're not participating. You're just lurking. I like all of our community's tweets. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, Canva started ballpark 2012-ish. And you somehow got an American investor to buy into the original idea, the yearbook idea, or to the Canva idea? The Canva idea. Who was that investor and how did you meet them? Yeah, so um, I, I mentioned before uh, an investor, Bill Tai. He was in Perth. Um, Bill Tai, kite surfing Bill Tai. Kite surfing Bill Tai. Yeah, oh, I know Bill. He retired, rich. Yeah, <laughs> he's still doing things, lots of he's, things. He's doing a lot of kite surfing, apparently that's from his true. Instagram. Yeah, that's very true as well. He's the kite surfing VC. He was at Charles River Ventures, Correct. CRV. Yes, and then he left because he had some spectacular investment. I can't remember which one it was, but anyway, he, so you, you met him? Yeah. So he was in Perth and I met him at a conference and we had a five minute chat and, um, he said, yeah, if I went to Silicon Valley, he'd meet with me. And so I jumped on a plane to Silicon Valley. Actually, truth be told, I emailed him a number of times asking him to sign an NDA and he kind of didn't respond to my emails. Um, I guess so <laughs> in retrospect, you, not really that surprisingly. You're like, yeah, that is like the 101 know, rookie mistake of founders. Okay, admittedly, I made every single rookie mistake under the sun. Because I, yeah. I mean, I didn't even know about right. startups or venture capital. I didn't even, yeah, he was the first one that I'd met, I think. Right. So you, and in the event, he was speaking or something like that. And you just, what, like stage dived or just grabbed him in the hall and we're like, hey, I'm Yeah, went I'm up Melody, to him gonna... afterwards and had a, had a little chat. And um, yeah. He... And how old are you at the time? You said you were 19 or 20? Um, so I'd had a company for a couple of years. So I must have been about 21, something like that. So 20? Bill Tai is this major baller, American venture capitalist. Yeah. You accost him in the hallway and say, can I get five minutes? And then he says, email me. Uh, if you come to Silicon Valley, I'll meet with you. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I messaged him a few times, didn't get much of a response. And then I was like, okay, well, hey, I'm going to be in the area. I was totally not going to be in the area, but I'm going to be in the area. Like, do you want to catch up? And he was like, yes. Such a power move. <laughs> Such a power move. You said, I'm going to be in the valley. Yeah. Uh, next week, would you like to get coffee? Exactly. So now you took the social pressure off of him of, oh my gosh, he's flying thousands of miles at some huge expense. I did this exact same thing yeah. with Jeff Bezos. Oh, really? I had uh, met Jeff and I was doing Weblogs Inc., which was mm -hmm. Engadget and Autoblog and all these blogs. And I was with my partner, Brian. I said, I think Jeff Bezos will invest because we have Mark Cuban and Mark Andreessen is going to invest and we're going to get 
Bezos. I'm going to email him next week. You have anything on your calendar? I said to my co-founder, I said, no. So I emailed him. I said, hey, Jeff, nice seeing you at this conference. Same exact story. I'm going to be uh, in your area on Tuesday and Wednesday next week. Uh, would love to tell you more about what we're doing with Engadget and Autoblog and Joystick. And he wrote back in like under an hour. And was like, sure, uh, this person will set it up. We nice. went. And they said he has 20 minutes and he spent an hour and 20 minutes with us. Ah, oh, congrats. But it was the same exact playbook. <laughs> yeah. And so what happens in that meeting? You show him the prototype or you just explain to them broad strokes, here's the plan? So with my first company, it was in my mom's living room. We had a printing press because we were physically printing these yearbooks. So I became an amazing print operator, like wow. changing print cartridges and changing um, the paper and we actually for three months a year did this 24 7 um, and so it was a pretty intense experience but anyway that the point of that story was that I had a printing press so I printed off my pitch deck on paper wow. the future of publishing the future and, of publishing yeah. wow grandiose and, and I um I sat down with Bill it was on U University Avenue University Cafe um, yeah of course which is now shut down which I'm kind of disappointed about yeah. but side note this is a very Silicon Valley <laughs> moment very silicon valley and i sat down i was super like nervous right. i would actually was terrified and sat down and was like okay like trying to eat my lunch i'd read that if you mimic someone's body language they like you more and he had his Is that right apparently apparently wow. builds empathy i think it's called mirroring mirroring yeah exactly this is what therapists do how <laughs> is it also cult leaders okay yeah oh, interesting and founders of companies well when you're trying to make someone like you yeah exactly <laughs> and so he but he was sitting there with his like arm behind his chair and I was like, okay, so I'm going to try and sit with my arm behind my chair. So now you're like man-spreading and getting the arm out and there. And trying to eat my lunch and trying to flick through the future of publishing while trying to sell the vision of the future of publishing. And he was very unattentive. He didn't, didn't seem to be interested at all. He was on his phone. And I was <laughs> oh like, my oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. I have completely flopped. And um, But I went back and he messaged me and he said that um, he'd be happy to invest if I could find a tech team. And so he'd also introduced me to Lars Rasmussen, who co-founded Google Maps. And I met up with him the next day mm -hmm. and I chatted to him for hours and we realized like there was a lot of alignment in like what we believe the future of communication would be like. Um, and he was really happy to help find a tech team. But what this actually entailed was just me trying to bring every single engineer I met um, on LinkedIn, met on the bus, just like yeah. literally any anyone I would, that would possibly join my tech team and him rejecting them just time and time and time again. And it was incredibly frustrating because this went on for a whole year of him just being like, nope, <laughs> like this person's not good enough. You've got a really hard technical project. You need to have someone amazing that's like wow. built a huge scalable platform before. And like that was really frustrating because I wanted to get started on the future of publishing. Right. Um, but then eventually, after a year, ended up finding our amazing co-founder, Cameron Adams, and our CTO, Dave Herndon, um, and eventually got to work. So they forced you to find a tech team. Yeah. And they were right. They were. Actually, I'm, I'm really, truly grateful for that pain. Yeah. <laughs> it is. You know, it's so funny because, number one, I always tell investors turn your phone off in meetings. It's just such a bad <laughs> oh, look. Oh, so what he was actually doing was introing me to people. So oh, really? I should have told you that So part. you found out after. Yeah. So that afterwards I realized he was actually trying to connect me with his network. And this is why I tell investors, always have your moleskin, not like your stylist and your <laughs> iPad Pro and take notes on because people assume that you're checking your email. Yeah. 
and they get super insulted. And a founder at this very table, I was interviewing a founder a couple of weeks ago for our accelerator, and I turned my phone off like I did before we started. I nice. turned it over, and my Fitbit vibrated like with a notification. I was like, wait a second. I turned – I'm on airplane mode, which yeah. is like the foolproof way. Yeah, yeah. And I look, and it's, oh, I set the reminder to walk 250 steps an hour, so I cleared it. The founder emailed us and said, I'm withdrawing my application to your accelerator. And, you know, I don't think it's a fit for this reason, this reason. And Jason was on his watch during the meeting, so I don't think he's that interested. And I wrote an apology letter, and I was like, I am so sorry. I, In my book, in chapter whatever, I wrote, never be on your devices. I had turned my phone on airplane mode, and the stupid Fitbit watch, because we were sitting for over an hour... Reminded me to stand. But it is so important. Devices are, when people look at their devices, other people assume they don't care. That's fair. And I think it's fair. But at the same time, he was, like, doing he the was right my thing. only connection in Silicon Valley. And he, uh, A, he was doing the right thing. Yeah. And even if he wasn't doing the right thing, even if he was literally just on Facebook or something, yeah. like he, um, he was my one little tiny window into this whole world. No, it, it is amazing. I think this is why Bill Tai is such a great investor and he's so legendary is because the number one rule of investing is to never underestimate anyone, including the 22-year-old from Perth who is printing yearbooks in her living room. <laughs> but what that shows is that you're dogged and you're resilient and you're willing to do whatever it takes. And that's what the, you know, the higher order of success is for founders is being dogged, right? I mean, this is the thing you've learned. You, you got your, uh, your product decimated by some reviewer who's no longer, pu- publication's no longer publishing, but, you know, you're constantly going to get kicked like that and you have to ignore it and stay focused on the work. So you get these founders, you raise what, like 500K or something or a million in that first round? Um, we raised 1.6 from investors and we got 1.4 million matching funding from the Australian government, um, which was wow. very handy. So wait a second. So you raised 3 million. Yes. I'm guessing that's for 30% of the company or so. You don't have to confirm it, but that's ballpark what the round would be or less even. But anyway, you raised that money. So now the government, you... They own 14% of Canada? No, it's free. I know, I'm joking. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) This is unbelievable when you think about it. It was actually the reason why we were able to stay in Australia was because we like sold that to investors. We're like, hey, we can get this matching funding. And I I think if it wasn't for that, it would have been really challenging. And was that Sydney or Perth or New South Um, Wales? In Sydney. So we moved from Perth to Sydney. um, Because of that $1.4 million grant or um, part? Oh, so winding the story back a little. Yeah. So I, when I came to Silicon Valley for the first time until my visa expired and then I got kicked out of the country yeah. or specifically left like the day before, yeah. um, then I went back to Perth, moved my company from Perth to Sydney and then learned to kite surf to go to this kite surfing entrepreneurship conference to try and meet more investors. Oh. And then um, this came for another three months here and then landed investors. Well, this is Mai Tai? Yeah, exactly. Mai Tai. Uh-huh. Yeah. See, this is people don't realize. If you kite surf, you can just be unlimited funded. Or if you don't kite surf, you really work really hard to learn to kite surf. So then yes. you can get invited to the conference. How many days have you kite surfed? A lot, actually. I've, yeah. I've, but I've retired now. So you can get up on the board and everything. No problem. Yeah, I can actually get back to the same spot. But um, really? yeah, I, I, I was going to Mai Tai for some years. I got up on the board... I did it twice on Necker Island, and both times the wind stopped on the second day, so I like only did a half thing, and so I had to restart the next time I went. And I got up on the board. Congrats. And I had this 35 seconds 
of, you know, when you're holding the kite perfectly on the perfect angle and you feel like you're flying. It, I mean, is there another experience that is similar to kiteboarding you've ever had when, when it's just dialed in like that and you're perfectly flying along the waves? I have to admit that for a long part of my short-lived kite surfing career, there was a less flying and more just like gulping water and being like taken yes. 10 meters in the sky and like dumped on the sand and like taken out and having to get saved by a boat and almost. Like, Which was the 30 yeah, was, sec, 36 yeah. second of that experience. Yeah. Well, yeah, for a moment there is joy. Yes. And for most of the other time there is like just trying to uh, save your life. Well, that's what happened. I <laughs> yeah. literally am now flying away from Necker Island and I don't know how fast you go when you catch these things, but it feels like 30 or 40 miles an hour or something really fast. Yeah. And it's somewhere between being on like a moped and a motorcycle. It, mm -hmm. It's not like a bicycle. Let me leave it at that. Definitely. You're going fast. Yes. And I just face down, boom. And then you get dragged by the kite. Yeah. And my face is ripping along the water. And it all, all the water goes into your lungs and you're choking yeah. and gagging on water. And yeah. they had to send a boat to get me. Yeah. Because they're like, well, he's gone. I was yeah. like on halfway to Mosquito. So you... Go to that. You, they put in $1.4 million, but they had no equity. Wow. That is the biggest win in the history of government grants, you realize. Has there ever been a government grant of $1.4 million that created 500 jobs? It was, yeah, incredibly powerful. It's extraordinary. What, is it, what does the government of New South Wales think of this? Like, Are you like their hero? And <laughs> yeah, the, uh, we... There, it was actually a federal grant, um, so it was available. Oh, yeah, across for all of Australia. Uh, across Australia, yeah. You, you don't have to pay it back. No, it's a really cool program. There's a yeah. lot of paperwork, but like the amount of hour per uh, the payback was pretty good. Then you start making some money, and you raise another round of funding from a bunch of well-known folks. Who did the Series A then? After that, Felicis led our Series A. Wow, that's another great investor. Yeah. And then and after, Blackbird were like one of our earliest investors in our first round. I think they've invested in, or they have invested in every Blackbird one of our rounds. Blackbird is the Sydney-based VC. Yeah. And the woman who works there, uh, who I had dinner with when I was in Sydney, Sam Wong, is over there. But mm -hmm. there, Blackbird is Blackbird VC. They're funded by the Atlassian guys. Um. Yeah, they're investors. They're investor yeah. LPs. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a really great moment for Australia. Mm. The previous unicorn are LPs and Blackbird VC firm. And so you got um, funded by them. Mm -hmm. And then I want to hear the story of how you meet, I think the most powerful woman in Silicon Valley at this point, Mary Meeker, and raise, how much did you raise in this round? 70 mil. 70 million, which is mind blowing, at a $2.5 million, $2.5 billion valuation. I want to hear how you met Mary and how this deal came about when we get back on This Week in Startups. Walker Corporate Law is a boutique law firm that specializes in representing entrepreneurs and their startups, and they charge a fixed fee. So whatever you want to get done, you're not going to have that terrorizing PDF coming from your law firm and you open it up and you wonder, is this the month that I get a huge legal bill? Nope. Scott Walker is going to tell you what you're going to pay and he's got attorneys working with him and his partnership who have decades of experience. This is a boutique firm and they specialize. What that means is flat rate pricing, no getches, gotchas, no surprises. 
and world-class decade, multi-decade attorneys who've done this and who are choosing to do it. And you can reach Scott Walker directly, the founder, just like me. You can reach him directly, 415-979-9998, 415-979-9998. Scott at walkercorporatelaw.com. Put Jason sent me in the subject line, Scott at Walker Corporate Law. Say Uncle Jason sent me. He knows who Uncle Jason is. And you can visit walkercorporatelaw.com. But go ahead, email Scott. He's a mensch. He takes care of the people I send to him. He is a great attorney, and he does a great job for founders. He's chosen the path of supporting early-stage founders. And just like me, he operates right in that early stage, the first couple of years of a startup, to set them up for success. And he's great at what he does. Mergers and acquisitions, licensing arrangements, terms of service, privacy policies, all that stuff he can do for you, and he can do it at a great price with fixed fees. No surprises. So go ahead, 415-979-9998, or Scott at walkercorporatelaw.com. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. My guest is Melanie Perkins, and she is the co-founder and CEO of Canva. If you haven't used Canva, go to canva.com and just buy the pro version. It's free, yada, yada, but the pro version is basically (laughs) free too. It's 12 bucks. And if you have to create anything that's graphical, it'll come out, I would say, if you have no talent and you try to make an ugly design on Canva, it'll come out as a seven and a half. <laughs> and if you have any taste at all, <laughs> like if you have the ability to pick a three or four star restaurant on Yelp, you'll get to an eight and a half. I know this because just last week, somebody emailed me an invite to their event, a very close friend of mine. And I said, my God, this is the ugliest invite I've ever seen. And I just DC'd Sam, the president of Launch, who uh, accosted you for a selfie. She's <laughs> one of your super fans. She turned around and made a Canva invite that looked like a million bucks in five minutes. Excellent to hear. So go to canva.com right now and start an account and tell everybody and all your friends about it. It's incredible. Um, you have multiplayer mode? Can a company buy like 100 seats? Yeah, exactly. And they do. Oh, they do? Yeah. yeah. And then what? They can have a shared repository or exactly. something? Exactly. So they can collaborate. They can have all of their designs and templates and brand colors and logos and fonts. Oh, you can put in your brand kit? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I didn't know. How long have you had that product? And how do you price that one? Um, the same price. It's actually, yeah, it's for twelve ninety five as well. Wow. Yeah. We need that for our company because we just did our whole style kit and everybody's making ads it's the reason Canva got so big so fast because so many people are making their own ads now for social media. Because I noticed that the ad templates seem to be all over the place. Like you have standard banners, but I think Instagram and Facebook and Twitter all generated this whole other level of advertising. Has that been a big part of it? Yeah. Actually, there's heaps of ads created, heaps of social media content. Presentations have been growing like crazy. You had 20 million of them created. Um, yeah, like PowerPoint decks and keynotes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know you had templates for that. Yeah, you should definitely jump on that. We're investing ah. very heavily in that space, actually. It's interesting because I've been trying to find nice templates online and there's all these third party places, but they charge like 50 bucks for a template. You're saying that one time $50 purchase of a template, you just get the whole library on Canva for $12 a month. Yeah, exactly. And you don't even have to pay that. That's unbelievable. And you don't have to pay that, right? You can get it for free. And <laughs> But yeah, that's um, a, that was, I guess, the whole point was that you don't have to go to all these different sites to get all the pieces of content. It should just be there and collaborative and online. It's so funny. My team is watching this episode live and in the Slack chat room. They just told me that our Inside AI event, they did all the graphics on Canva. And this is for print graphics too, going back to your uh, pivot, 
we did all like the stand up banners and stuff like that, all on Canva and all the uh, ads. And you just bought some stock photography. Yeah. Tell me about that. Pexels and Pixabay are two of the largest free stock photography sites. They've got over a million images, 120,000 contributors. Um, and we're very excited for them to have joined the Canva family um, just last week. We announced that. So a million different uh, images now on the service. Yeah, for free. For free? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I know a lot of these photographers are a little upset about these stock photo places in the Creative Commons movement. What do you think of that controversy? We sort of provide for the entire spectrum. So we've got 50,000 schools using Canva now. And so they obviously need a heap of free content to be yeah. able to do all their projects. Um, and then we also have paid photography. Uh, oh. We also launched a unlimited uh, photo subscription last week where mm. you get access to 50 million images for 12.95. Oh, wow. So that's like an add-on? Yeah, that's oh. another a product that you can get, um, which is pretty cool. Like 50 million images for 12.95. It's not a bad deal. Yeah, all these <laughs> stock photographers, I think, are bumming. Like, how do that was an incredible industry to be in. It used to be when I was in the magazine business in the '90s. Stock photographers would get, gosh, tons of money for like they got royalties on all this, and just I guess the number of cameras out there, you can take really great photos with your iPhone camera, and there nobody can tell the difference for web or even print. It would have to be very high resolution print now for you to need. A super high res stuff. What about video? Are you guys in the video space yet or no? Yeah. I, I got pitched on Canva for video last year, but I was like, if Canva for video, I didn't say this to the founder, I don't want to hurt their feelings. If Canva <laughs> for video was going to be a thing, wouldn't Canva do Canva for video? It seems like the natural extension. I would definitely agree with that premise. Yeah. Okay. So it doesn't exist now. <laughs> the, the, we've, we've got, we're dabbling with video. So you can huh. start to put your videos in your designs. You can export it already as a video. Um, but there's there's a lot of news coming in that space. Yeah. That's going to be awesome for you. That unlocks like a whole bunch of new s subscribers because yeah. all these marketers are like doing videos for their websites. Restaurants are doing exactly. videos. It's kind of making its way. Yeah. I guess our premise is design anything, publish anywhere. And so you can kind of see that most things fit into that, pre into that basic uh, goal. So is the person who loses in Canva's great success, Adobe, is that the is that who you're taking customers from or keeping customers from going to? Is that the the battle you're in? Do a they hate you? A little. Yeah. Um, on both fronts. Um, but I think the PowerPoint as well. Like people used to be stuck with publisher and yeah. clip art and heinous yeah. fonts and really have you seen their templates? Like yeah. they're, they're they're not it's Brutal. Yeah. They're nasty. So, yeah. So I guess the yeah. I guess a lot of people who'd previously be previously used Microsoft, uh, we are now using Canva. Uh. Um, and then also for designers, like designers have this other huge pain point. That they usually have to send a PDF backwards and forwards and like, hey, can you change this tiny little yeah. typo? And so the idea is that they can create templates on Canva that the rest of the organization can then use. Yeah. So we kind of hope to replace PDF as a form of collaboration because yeah. that is like not really a great form of collaboration. But we used to basically have somebody on staff or, you know, somebody on staff would learn Photoshop or Illustrator and that's just gone for the bottom half of users. Does it, did Adobe create a competing product or are they threatened? you think they're threatened by you guys or are they just think it's like a different class of user? I don't know. We just kind of stick to our doing our own thing. Like we've got a really strong focus on serving our community and that's really where our team's attention and focus is. All right. You've gone through some media training. <laughs> I like it. Uh, what about all these other competitors? I know there were like a ton of them, Figma, Easily, all, Visually, all these ones, but none of them have hit any kind of scale. What, what do you think the differentiator has been for Canva? 
I think, like, I guess right from the start, we really set out to solve a really significant pain point. Like having seen, firstly, when I was teaching design programs and then with Fusion, like really seeing the pain points that people were having, um, really seeing the power of having this online collaborative platform um, and then just being really true to that. So having, you know, even as we were starting our small business with the first company, um, like trying to get a brochure and getting quoted $1,500 when we didn't have $1,500 to like make a brochure no um and so i think just being really focused on the customer's pain point and what they're trying to do um, has been pretty powerful but then i've been just blown away by our community so we've got 150,000 youtube videos have been made about canva people are tweeting about it they're having their own facebook groups with you know tens of thousands of people like just all what are they doing sharing what they're building yeah and like giving each other tips and workshops and like, and for all sorts of niche industries. So like there's YouTube videos about Canva for YouTube thumbnails and for beekeepers and for dentists and in all sorts of languages. Uh, Have people, is it sort of like Etsy in that if you become really good at Canva, you can then become a graphic designer and make 20, 30 bucks an hour, like on the back of your $12 subscription? Yeah. I see all the time job ads going up saying either like Canva's a required skill or on the inverse, people are putting it on their resume. And then even on Upwork, there's people that are advertising like Canva as a specialty. That's mind blowing. Um, So yeah, it's pretty cool to see. It's like a legitimate skill now. Yeah. You're you're Canva certified. Yeah, exactly. To do this. How did you meet Mary Meeker? How did that all go down? Um, So I guess- Were you running a process and she bid or did you like just- she reached out to you? So I met her a, a little while ago um, and Mood, her business partner, actually flew over to Australia um, to, to come and visit us. Um, and Mary yeah, and her partner flew. Um, wow. Mood flew over. Um, wow. But I met Mary a couple of years ago. Wow. And then, um, yeah, we, we really hit it off. And I think that they really understood our vision. So when we're looking, it's actually kind of funny. So in our early days, we were pitching every single investor under the sun and be right. like, hey, please please invest in our company. Um, and not many people thought that was a great idea at that point in time. Yeah. <laughs> but then um, in in more recent years, we've been very lucky that a lot of investors have been trying to get into Canva. Yeah. Um, and so we really just got to have the pick of like who wow. we thought would be able to help take us to that next level of scale. And we really look for investors that believe in our vision and what we're trying to do. It's kind of fun. It's a bit of a self-selection process. The people who believe in us and our vision invest and people who don't, don't. Um, don't. And yeah. it, it kind of works out well because it means that you're surrounded by amazing people that really believe in what you're trying to achieve. I think it's a very positive way of looking at what every entrepreneur goes through in the first half of their journey, which is pain pain and suffering <laughs> and no's and yeah. being under-resourced. Yes. And then you go into the second phase where you're being annoyed and pulled in every direction. Everybody wants you to speak at their conference. Everybody wants you to be on their podcast. Everybody wants to invest in your company. Everybody wants to put you on the cover of a magazine. And you're fighting against a deluge of inbound. How, do, how have you managed that and stayed focused? Is it hard? Um, I don't find it that hard because I just pretty much haven't been doing much external things yeah as you kind of as i know out. i know i came to sydney and they're like we have the greatest keynote ever and i'm like fantastic booker and they're like she's not interested and i'm like i'm sorry <laughs> wait a second I'm sorry. <laughs> i came all the I way to sydney <laughs> and she's too busy for me but you're here now which is all I that am. matters i i think like 
in the early days, we had to do a lot of external things. So I was really like, you know, the internal and external locus of control. Like it was yeah. a very external, uh, I have a very internal locus of control, but I was having to ask permission, please be my investor, please join my yes. team. Yes. And now like, it's sort of really lucky because we've just, it's really about us executing and us delivering upon our community's mm. needs and um, building out this, this platform that we've always been dreaming about. Um, and so I've sort of went through a really strong phase of just being able to purely service and work with our community um realize now we probably need to start to build canvas profile a little stronger in the like i think it's a good idea but you know <laughs> i appreciate the focus because i see a lot of founders in the earlier phase to you getting caught up in their tedx talks and summit at sea and web summit and this summit and that summit i'm like how about we summit profitability yeah we, we are profitable yeah <laughs> can we summit like filling the four positions in our management team that are empty right now like there's other mountains to summit right now other than like going on a cruise with a bunch of dipshits to like you know say we're going to change the world like being laser focused and that's the purity i think of the moment you probably had the last couple of years is when you have that product market fit and you know it that is the ultimate pressure reliever isn't it as a founder Yes, definitely. Yeah. I think that like there is a love your customers yeah, okay. love you. One hundred percent. So having seeing like the stories from our community. So there's been a billion designs created yeah. in, and in those like billion designs are the most amazing stories. Like a lady found her birth mother. Um sheriffs in the US use it to create wanted posters. Yeah. Um, like so many people have like helped get their small business off the ground and like all of these amazing stories. And like that literally is what fuels our team and yeah. makes us super happy. I think on the other side of things, it always feels like we haven't yet done enough. We say we've done 1% and we like really mean that that's kind of almost an exaggeration. Like there's just so much more that we want to do and achieve yet. I think that's probably the reason why people are willing to pay the price they paid in terms of valuation for the company, which let's face it, its valuations are very high right now. But if you think about having 500,000 subscribers right now, and oh, that's only one revenue stream, I should state. Yeah. So we've got 500,000 subscribers. We had like 250,000 um, print orders through our print product now. Oh, okay. Um, and then we so also make a little bit of a vig on that. Yeah. And then we have a marketplace as well. So people can purchase images. Um, but if you just think about the raw number. As raw, <laughs> the, but the raw number of subscribers, it's very interesting when. If you, when I remember when Calm was coming up and people were like, yeah, I don't think they can get to like more than 10 or 20,000 subscribers, like people willing to pay for meditation. And people don't understand the scale of the planet. You know, you got three or four billion people online of the seven and, you know, 50 bucks a year or 150 bucks a year is not a lot of money. And it's because it's monthly and subscription, there's no, and you make it free, but even if you pay, there, there's really little at risk in these SaaS products. So there could be 50 million people subscribing to this easily. I mean, that sounds crazy to people that it would have as many subscribe. You could have more subscribers than America Online had or similar to HBO in America for your product. I mean, it could absolutely go 100x from here. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a few more industries we're going to be getting into yet. Oh, really? Yum, yum. Design anything, publish anywhere. <laughs> oh, design anything, publish anywhere. Is that the tagline? That's... Yeah, that's that's literally like what we're we're working on. Okay, so you're gonna put 3D printers in space, and mm -hmm. you can build out the Mars colony yeah. ahead of time. Uh, <laughs> are, have you thought about that 3D printing and stuff like that, or is that just too corny? Um, niche. Uh, something that'd be kind of fun is like, I mean. This isn't really part of the big macro vision, yeah. but just being able to like do, 
you know, you can print. So we launched t-shirts last week, actually. Oh, did you really? So you can actually now Brilliant. get your, yeah, you can get your, des- your design, like firstly on your, you know, any of your swag and marketing materials on your t-shirts. Um, oh, so I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. That's a, that's a reasonable size thing, but then websites as well. So at the moment you can already click publish and it turns into a website. Um, but we're going to wow. dive deeper into that. So there's a lot of different things. That that's can- interesting. So you could see yourself as a Squarespace or WordPress Perhaps. competitor, or coexister. Yeah, exactly. And the Teespring mm-hmm. because that's and definitely to take on PowerPoints. So that's a that's a pretty big one as well. Just do you need to have a separate brand for that? Is as a product person, I think that's primarily what you'd say your superpower is, other than getting people to give you tons of money and believe in your vision when you're making your books. Um, I, so are you a product designer? By I, I love product. Yeah, yeah, products my my heart and soul. So, do you feel like the product now has so many features that you would have to put like maybe those things in other products or have Canva slides, Canva like have like a suite of products? Is yeah, that going to be the ultimate? I guess the goal, is, like one of the philosophies from the early days, was that you should be able to have one product and have all of the tools and assets and everything that you need, and everything should be hidden by search bars, so you can search for whatever it is that you want. Yes. Um, but then the idea is that we only make a small change if you want to design a presentation. It's pretty much the same thing as designing a video, but with a couple of tiny little tweaks mm-hmm. to optimize for that forum or for yeah. a website. You shouldn't have to go and learn a whole new tool. You should be able to do that right. in the same thing. Got it. And if you want to design a t-shirt why don't you do that in the same thing too makes total sense. so that's that's the goal so it's interesting thinking about locus of control that you brought up before if the designer is where it all happens that's the input that's the creative process that's kind of the well mm-hmm. what comes from the well and where does the water flow exactly it flows to a website it flows to a t-shirt it flows to a mug exactly and, you know eventually and videos. then pretty much like each button in canva is a separate industry so there's like one button and that's the stock photography industry and then yeah. there's another button and that might be the template sort of yeah there's like fonts and lots of these things had previously been completely separate sites do you have in the marketplace people who are Canva experts that you can hire as part of it, or do you just let that kind of go to Upwork and other places? Yeah, that happens across the web, yeah. elsewhere. So uh, when we get back, I want to know what you th- what's the goal for the next 10 years, because you're now, what is it, six years old? Five. We five. launched five years ago. Launched five years yeah. ago, and you spent a year building, and then two years on the pivot before that, but yeah, five, six years on this. Oh, it's been... Yeah, it's like 11 years since we first came It's another overnight success in yeah. 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> like any of the other ones. Uber just went public nine years after I invested in it. So like, but let's talk about that. Congrats. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, it's uh, It worked out. It all worked out, in the mm-hmm. words of Gary Camp. Did you see that quote? Yeah. That was hilarious. They're like, they're like, Gary Camp, you created Uber. It changed the world. What are you feeling uh, right now? Mm, I'm glad it all worked out. <laughs> they're like- are we talking to Forrest Gump or something? <laughs> like he just like, yeah, I guess it worked out. <laughs> when we get back, hey, what about an IPO? And would you do that here or would you do that in Sydney? And what what are the next five six years going to be like uh, for you in Canva? What do you what do you have to do as a founder to get you know the next five years? Uh, and what do you consider success? When we get back and wrap up here on this week in startups. Almost all the wealth created here in Silicon Valley in technology comes from equity, not salary. People's salaries maybe pay for their rent, but people's boats and planes and houses and vacations, that comes from equity. And we are specialists in this ourselves here at This Week in Startups and as an investor. And all of that gets tracked on something called a cap table, C-A-P. 
capitalization table, but they're always broken and they're always wrong. We're always having to go back and check them as angel investors uh, and make sure that the employees and everybody's getting the same uh, amount of equity that they were promised because, hey, this is compensation. It really matters. You have to get it right. But companies and attorneys are still using spreadsheets and paper certificates to issue their options and to keep track of equity. This leads to problems if these things are messed up. And they're updated so frequently with every single new hire or if you get a valuation or a new round of funding, and it leads to tons of inaccuracy. Well, Carta fixes cap tables and equity management in more than 10 thousand companies, you heard that right, NVC firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, and myself, Jason Calacanis. We have hundreds of billions of dollars in equity captured and managed perfectly by Carta, C-A-R-T-A. And you can simplify your cap table and make sure it's perfect and not have any drama. Nobody wants cap table drama. Trust me, it is not pleasant as a founder to have to deal with that. You will get 20% off your cap table software and 409A valuations if you go to carta.com slash twist, C-A-R-T-A.com slash twist. It's super affordable. It's easy to use. You're going to get 20% off at that link, C-A-R-T-A.com slash twist. You have to get your cap table correct. Go to carta.com slash twist, C-A-R-T-A.com slash twist. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, it took me 17 emails and uh, a year and a half, but I got Melanie Perkins on the podcast and it was worth it. Uh, we've learned so much today and I think it's just a great lesson for everybody in resiliency, not giving up and being focused on your customer and your product. Congratulations on uh, the acquisitions of Pixabay and Pexels. Pexels? Uh, and Mary Meeker and uh, what is her new thing? Bond? Mm -hmm. Bond Capital putting in 70 million. But that's... People don't realize you raise this money. It's they just think like, oh wow, the founder's got seventy million. Like maybe you took some secondary, who knows? But um, you you have to then turn that seventy million into at least five or ten x to make them happy. This is an obligation. What do you have to do as a founder and CEO over the next five years to make all these new investors and the team successful? Well, we have a two step plan. Okay. So step one. It's, a, it's very simple. Yeah. Step one, build one of the world's most valuable companies. Okay, great. And step two, do the most good we can do. Okay. Build the world's most valuable company. One of the world's, but I can't, okay. uh, hopefully not one of, but you know, let's be, let's be uh, You'd be a little bit humble. Here. I yeah, guess yeah. Realize <laughs> So one of the world's most valuable companies, which the most valuable companies would be in the 250 billion range and above, right? We would agree. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where the Googles and the Facebooks and the Apples live in that 250 to billion dollar, a trillion dollar range. So you got a hundred exit. It actually seems possible. Yeah, not completely implausible. <laughs> I would. So then the question is possible or probable. I would put it between those two. It's mm -hmm. it's completely possible, and it's starting to feel probable because if you can get to five hundred thousand, there was some point you were at five hundred subscribers, and you said, "Wow, if we could ten x this," and then you hundred x it, and wow. So this is pretty easy, I think. You'll get there. Um, and then the second part is to do a lot of good. Yeah, do the most good we can do. We'd kind of like to do help. the most good you can do. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's quite a lot of good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you help people make the world more beautiful and make them more efficient at work, efficiency is great for humanity, net net. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about this IPO market? Because you guys are in that nine figure revenue zone, I think, uh, based on my estimation, because I can look at 500 employees. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are in the $75, $125 million zone. 
You could go public. Sydney, it's easy to go public, isn't it? Like you can go public with 10 million and 20 million in revenue there. How do you think about the public markets watching Uber and PagerDuty, Pinterest, Lyft, all these companies go public? Do you think it's too early or just right? And in Sydney, do the founders want to go public? Is we're, that the goal? We're not in a rush. I mean, we're yeah. profitable and we've got like quite an incredible number of investors. Like in the last round, we had General Catalyst join as oh, well. That's great. And um, Blackbird and Felicis, who have been long-time yeah. supporters. And so I think for us, there's certainly no rush and there's no mm. lack of capital. Um, and we're able to continue to invest really heavily in our long-term success. Um, so, yeah, there's no rush. How do you think about it? Something Is that like a personal goal for you, though? I mean, it's kind of like every founder dreams of that. I mean, it might be a step on the journey to, to, yeah. go, to goal number one. There is a window, though. Are you getting a lot of pressure to do it or? No. No pressure. And in Sydney, how do people think about it? Because you can go, people don't understand, the markets there allow for people going going public with what, 20 million, 10 million? It's, it's a much more, it's a, it's a much more orderly process there than it is here. I think here it's like a lot of drama and big numbers, but do a lot of companies go public there, like startups? Yeah, quite a few. And you must have had the opportunity to go when you had 10 or 20 or 30 million in revenue and you turned it down. Yeah, I mean, there's not any specific point to do that, really. I think, like, like I guess, you know, one of the themes that are probably coming out a little, I don't really like distraction. I like yeah. getting to build a company. Right. And I feel really fortunate to be able to build that company without too yeah. much distraction at the moment. Yeah. So acquisitions, though, are probably the best part of having this war chest since you're profitable anyway. You can just start buying these companies and it adds so much value. How do you think about acquisitions? If it adds a lot of value to our community and we've got really strong values alignment with the founders and what we're trying to achieve together, then yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We've made three acquisitions now. How have you done in terms of integrating them? What have you learned um, about that? Yeah, it's been really successful. So the first team from Zedings, um, they had an amazing, or oh, they have an amazing interactive um, presentations product. They've joined our team and are really leading out our presentations um, product now, which is incredibly awesome. They've just got such a like strong founder mentality and then Pexels and Pixabay are going to continue to operate independently, mm. um, continue to serve their community and then all of their photography and everything will be available on Canva. So it really works awesomely both ways. Um, so I think every, every company is unique in how yeah. it should work together. How is the United States your largest market? Yeah, so we're in 190 countries now. Um, Are you localized language-wise in all yeah, of them? Yeah, so we- wow, that um, must have been hard. Do yeah. you use like a third-party company to do that, or are you just like hire people in each country? How does um, that work? Yeah, we've had about 200 translators across the globe translating. Wow. Um, and last year we launched in China, and we really, we've set up a team there and really had to localize very heavily there, um, including moving servers and everything over there to do it properly. Um, we also launched, the other hard languages we were sort of leaving towards the end was launching in Arabic and Hebrew and Urdu, all the um, right to left languages. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we launched in that last year after a lot of customer demand. And so it's pretty exciting to see just how broadly across the globe Canvas being used now. And you can launch in these other countries and operate without having a ton of employees in those countries now. It's pretty amazing what remote has done. Like you're a company from Sydney with the majority of your revenue from America. Yeah. No, do you have a team here or? Um, we've got a few people here. Like a handful. Yeah. Or... But yet it's your largest market mm. and it doesn't matter. It's not mind blowing when you think about it. It's pretty cool. Like when you look at like just how far flung our user base is, it's, yeah. it's pretty cool to see. 
Yeah, it's crazy. In fact, yeah, like I was backpacking in um, Chile over Christmas and there was like a camera design and that just happens all the time, just like running into camera designs and people who love it, which is very cool. Yeah. And China, that's got to be intense to, yeah, try to do business there. Yeah, it was a big initiative and investment, but it's certainly paying off. It's growing phenomenally quickly. What do you do? You start a, a separate company there and partner with Alibaba or somebody? No, we've set up a full team there. Um, yeah. We hired some amazing people to to move there. Uh, and we moved a bunch of people from Sydney over there. Wow. Um, and we've really invested like with local partners. So the biggest stock photography and font company there uh, became partners. We did a big media um, conference and had heaps of journalists and yeah, Do really went all in there. Are people there getting in businesses starting to do SaaS subscriptions? Is it like a thing like it is here in the States? Yeah, it, it is a thing. I think that um, there's a saying there that SaaS is not software as a service. It's software and a service. Ah. And it's um, it's quite fascinating. There's a bit more like hand-holding and sort of a bit more top-down than bottom-up in, in some regards. Oh, in China? In China. Ah, so you have to get buy-in from the top and then they deploy it. That that kind of makes sense if you think about management philosophy, like, you know, bottom-up. What about Japan? Yeah, we're in we're in Japan as well. It's a completely different market, though. Does it, does it work to localize a product there or is it harder? Um, yeah, I mean, it's critical to localize the product. And then we've partnered with a um, KDDI, which is a really large telco there. Yeah. And it's been growing really quickly there, too. Amazing. Well, listen, continued success. Uh, congratulations. If you were go back in time to your 22-year-old self and whisper some advice that you learned as a founder growing from uh, uh, a, uh, what do you call those books? Yearbooks? Yeah. Growing from a yearbook, yearbook. entrepreneur. <laughs> yearbook entrepreneur. <laughs> The premise uh, was still the same, simple design. It, it's yeah. not as obscure as it sounds. It's pretty amazing that a 19 or 20-year-old decided to start a yearbook company. Were your parents like entrepreneurs? Where did this gene get into you? Were they founders of companies or um, entrepreneurial? Not so much. But what they were or are are just like ridiculously supportive of like huh. our wild ideas as kids. Oh, were they? Yeah. They were like, great, go for it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, like when I was 14, I started a tiny little company that made scarves and sold them to shops around Perth. And that was really helpful because it meant that I could actually terrifyingly pick up a phone and get my scarves. At, at 14? Yeah. What was the first moment you realized in your life you were an entrepreneur? Was there some like movie you saw about entrepreneurship or some moment where you saw a business operating and said, that's for me? Do um, you remember? I've just always liked solving problems. Ah. And I like from quite a young age, I remember going to Bali for the first time and just seeing the complete inequity um, between like what I had as a child growing up, like with a good education and yeah. all the rest of it and seeing kids on the street and being like, okay, well, that's something that I would like to help solve at some point, which yeah. is why we had our two-step plan. Right. Make the world better, mm -hmm. make a ton of money, and then you're going to give it all away. Yeah, you be a philanthropist. And, but hopefully, I feel like there's enough goodness in the world, there's enough goodwill, there's enough money to solve all of the problems in the world, we just need a little help to, to reorientate society a little. I think that's right. I mean, if you look at capitalism, it is the best system out there. Some people argue it gets a little out of control at times or the numbers get so big because what you've learned and we've all learned is these products can go global. And when they do, it creates an, a very large footprint of a business, right? It's pretty mind-blowing. 
Um, but almost every capitalist I know has taken the giving pledge, which we have here in the United States, where mm-hmm. you just agree to give away. I took it. Like you give away half your money when you die, and who cares? Like you're gonna makes total sense. You're dead. Like, yeah. Um, and just amazing things are happening on a philanthropic basis. And all these problems are, are not going to be solved by governments. Like governments generally don't solve problems. So my theory yeah. is that to uh, solve the world's problems, yeah. we actually need governments and companies and nonprofits and entrepreneurs and VCs and everyone to work together to yeah. reach the goals. So I think that like there needs to be a lot more collaboration and a lot yeah. more voice given to goals um, that we all have because we all want a better world. Yeah. We just don't happen to have a functioning government in our country right now. How's it going over there? I think there's definitely a little more, um, there's room for improvement, let's say that, across the globe to actually give goals of people more of a voice. And so we've got got a few things in the works coming up. Yeah. Uh, And what was that advice you'd give to your younger self? Like you must have learned something about this crazy entrepreneurial journey and what matters. I think maybe... I think that I'd just give a couple of words. It'll be okay. It'll be okay. And I think that I, huh. along a lot of the journey, you just don't really know. You're kind of like just walking down a dark, dark tunnel and being like, I think this is the right way. And then you start having people behind you. And now we've got 600 people behind us. And it's like, I think this is the way. My tiny little candle in front of me is only yeah. burning a little over here. But I, yeah. I think that this is the direction. It's not a wall. <laughs> So, you just don't really know because it is a dark tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you'll be okay. I think you've got a little bit more of a spotlight now than you know, <laughs> I can the, see a little further. You see a little further. You <laughs> yeah, can see there's about a few more feet. people carrying lights. <laughs> yeah. Behind you, you have the competitors like <laughs> running down the hall. You got a lot of competitors now too, huh? A um, lot of fast followers. That's annoying, isn't it? Yeah, but I guess you know what's the, what's the saying? It's a, a compliment. I'm not really sure that that really applies. It's a little annoying, but at the same time- Because you got people copying. I know because one of them pitched me when I was in Sydney or something, and they were just like, we're going to take on Canva. And I was like, okay, explain. And they were like, yeah, well, we're going to just make it cheaper. And I was like, isn't it like 10 bucks a month or something? Like, I don't think that strategy is going to work, like to undercut the person who's already got the- It made no sense. They had no pitch, but the pitch was basically, we're going to- beat them by being cheaper i was like i don't think that's gonna work yeah, I'm, not, I'm not deeply concerned about that yeah no I mean, what is there anything that concerns you at this point what concerns you oh everything concerns me yeah. we're one percent done we've got 99 percent to okay. go <laughs> there's like yeah. i think that that's Stay the thing paranoid. <laughs> as a founder like i think our job is to continuously focus on the things that need to be improved yeah. which does kind of give you a slightly warped view because it's not i don't often sit there and be like yeah hey this is just all working out like yeah. things are set it's always like oh my god we haven't done this thing yet like this was in the business plan years yeah. ago we haven't done it yet or this shouldn't be happening we need to make this better and faster and more efficient or whatever yeah. it might be and that's just continuous yeah i think that's the difference between entrepreneurs and then maybe non-entrepreneurs or non-entrepreneurial people is that sense of urgency. And you can always tell the, we have a, in, I've, I was an entrepreneur for most of my career, but I'm also an investor now. And the velocity of people's ability to launch product is correlated with their success. And that is driven by a sense of urgency. Like, well, this was on the plan <laughs> and we still don't have a VR AR tool and you can't make Minecraft levels and Fortnite levels in Canva. Why not? And it's like, well, because that's insane. Like we, there's tools for that and it's VR and AR goggles don't even exist yet. Like we might want to wait a year or two for them to exactly exist. Yeah. All right. What did I miss? Any any questions I missed? No, I it was very extensive. Thank you for your excellent questions. 
it's a pleasure. How old are you now? I'm 32. 32. Congratulations. I think you are the youngest female founder to ever become a unicorn. Did you know that? Oh, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, the only other one was Theranos, and that was a complete utter fraud. And you have 500,000. I liked the vision. I was deeply disappointed about that, actually. Yeah. You know what? It's, it's disappointing in a way, but it happens so infrequently mm. that I kind of think like, yeah, there's going to be one sociopathic crazy person out of every 10,000 founders. And like that one just happened to get a lot further than the others. Like so much other good is happening in the world that people get super fixated on it. But it would have been cool to get a blood test like that. Yeah. It, it would have been cool if the vision that was selling was, was real. Was real. Yeah. Yeah. The problem was the VCs I knew who were looking at it, they said, oh, uh, great. We'll, we'll invest. This sounds like a great idea. Can you show us the machine? And she was like, back to the NDA. She's like, yeah, you got to sign this NDA, but I, I can't actually show you the machine. And they're like, we're investors. We're giving you money from LPs that are like endowments or whatever. Like we, we have to do this thing called due diligence. Oh no, it's machines proprietary. Can't show it to you. Mm. And like, yeah, I think that that's one thing that's really critical as a founder is like we try to always undersell numbers. So we round down if we have a number. I think like it is really critical to make sure that truth is a very very strict line in the sand, and you you don't ever cross that. Yeah, managing expectations and not young founders. It's good that you learn. Managing so expectations is a slightly different yeah. different kettle of fish because you are needing to get people to understand your vision and what you're trying to do and achieve. But it's also it's critical for people to know where you are today and not to be shifty with that one. Yeah, it's interesting. Like if you people take the rosiest picture sometimes and then they double it, and that is really dangerous especially when you have shareholders. Mm -hmm. We have a special term for that here in America. It's called... Uh, lying? Well, it's lying, <laughs> but it, it's also called securities fraud. When you, If you sell a share yeah, and some fact in your DAC or your diligence was wrong yeah, and you knew it yeah, and you sold shares to the company, then you've triggered securities fraud. And that happened like three or four times. Yeah, it, uh, I think that... Like the whole relationship with VCs is built on trust. And so you have to be strictly honest. All right. Uh, we'll see you all next time on This Week in Service. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.